This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Well, we have a busy show for you this evening. Don Jeffries, the author of Hidden History and his latest Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, will be here towards the bottom of the hour and then into hour two as well. And then towards the tail end of the program, I'm dipping into the Wayback Machine and dusting off an old interview with the late rock and roll historian R. Gary Patterson to talk about John Lennon and the number nine. Of course, today marks the 39th anniversary of Lennon's murder outside the Dakota building on New York City's Upper West Side. And I'll get Don Jeffries to weigh in on that as well. Coming up first, this is the second Sunday of the month, and that means a visit from the discoverer of reverse speech and the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio, David John Oates. And he's here with some audio clips forwards and in reverse of Mark David Chapman and John Lennon. Hey, David, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing very well, thank you. After my long track uh, back home to Australia, but I seem to be settled in. So, uh, yeah, so good to be back. Wonderful, be wonderful. Back. All right, today is the 39th anniversary of the horrible uh, tragedy, the murder of John yeah. Lennon back in yeah. December uh, of 1980. Uh, just outside his Dakota building in uh, the Upper West Side of New York City. And um, you went right to work and you found some amazing clips from the um, from the killer, Mark David Chapman. Just set this uh, up for yes. us. Uh, yes, I did indeed. Um, uh, yeah, I went back through my files and, and I actually got a few clips on, uh, on Mark David Chapman and John Lennon. Some of the John Lennon ones are quite stunning, but we'll uh, start off with, uh, start off with uh, Mark David Chapman. Of course, I remember the day very well when uh, John Lennon was shot, same as I remember when Elvis Presley died, two of my great fans. So, um, Okay, so let's have a look at uh, Mark David Chapman. And uh, this is an interview he did on Larry King. Now, I'm not too sure which one. It was actually on Larry King twice. So here's the first one here. It was a rough thing. What, uh, had you shot that weapon before? 
with that weapon? No. Um, I didn't even know if the bullets were going to work. And here he says, go with my wuss, as in W-S-S. Girl with no wuss. Girl with no wuss. Girl with no wuss. Go with my wuss. What does that mean? Oh, cowardly act. A wuss is a coward. Ah, right. Yes. Yes. Well, he certainly was. Yeah, it, it, it was a cowardly act. And uh, then he says, this one. Were you uh, relieved? No, I, what happened was I was in a, what happened before the shooting, before I pulled the trigger and after were two different uh, scenes in my mind. And he says, I guess they're more powerful. 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 So it's a cowardly act, and he looked up at John Lennon as being more powerful, as being this uh, this powerful figure. In point of fact, he actually gives him an interesting metaphor, and uh, here is the metaphor he, uh, he puts up for John Lennon. Lennon and Ono's white limousine drove north along Central Park West, turned left at 72nd Street, and stopped in front of the Dakota's entrance at 10.50. Chapman was still waiting. I see a limo pull up to the stoplight. And I know that that it's him. I, I have this incredible feeling. And he has a really interesting metaphor, our fanciful Mona Lisa. And there it is. That is very clear. Hmm. Very clear. And so he called him powerful. And so he obviously, and, and, and compared him to Mona Lisa, he obviously had that, He in his mind, he was this figure of great power and value, you know. And uh, uh, I mean, that one I found in my files. It's been floating around in my computer for years, you know. Right, so, right. That's a, why do some people in the reversals speak in metaphor uh, and some are just uh, quite literal. Right. Uh, it depends on what part of the mind it's coming from. When they're very literal, straightforward English reversals, they're generally conscious thoughts. Um, when you're getting down to metaphor, you're getting down to unconscious thoughts and unconscious motivations. So uh, so this uh, that Pat fanciful Mose and Lisa shows that he was deep down into his unconscious. I mean, this was a very deep thing for him. Now, some people have suggested, and I think there is some evidence to suggest, that he was a mind-controlled patsy. In fact, a British author, Brenton Fesler, who wrote a, wrote a book about uh, the murder, and, and Fesler interviewed one of the homicide detectives on the case. And the homicide detective agreed with him that, that Chapman had all the appearances of someone who was under some kind of mind control. Would something, if someone was under mind control, I'm wondering, I know on, on reverse speech radio, you have, you have done reversals on MK Ultra victims. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, if someone were under a, under mind control, um, would they, would their reversals indicate guilt or what would happen? Um, you would see it in their reversals. I wasn't looking for it, 
but there's one here that may actually indicate it. Um, let me just play this one. I'm skipping over two or three here. I think you brought that up. Um, uh, I don't know. Let, let's just play it. Because without that, I probably wouldn't be alive today because I was very suicidal. And I certainly wouldn't be in a, in a well state of mind, not without him. Did you have, prior to the conversion to the Lord, remorse? It says their soul in it enabled. 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 So what? Whose soul in it enabled? Mm. What does that mean? Does their that, soul. Did he say their soul in it? Exactly correct. Their mm. soul in it. And I never had no idea what that meant until you um, until you brought that that up. Um, huh, interesting. Right. Their soul in it enabled. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. All right, let's look at a couple more on Mark David Chapman. Then yes. Get to Lennon, I got a couple of uh, real clangers on Lennon. All right. So here we have him again. I pray, and I and I walk with him. He forgives me. He doesn't condone what I did, and that's a very important thing. He didn't like what I did 12 years ago. He didn't like all the pain I caused everybody, and especially John's widow. But he forgives me, and he hears me, and he listens to me, and he is the one all these years that has brought me out of the abyss, not medications or counseling. I basically had to counsel myself. Okay, so he's talking about obviously a conversion, Christian conversion, but he says backwards, say, be lying. Say, be lying. Say, be lying. <laughs> say, say, be lying. Is he saying that he's lying? Yeah, he's saying that he's lying. It's 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 a joke. He's just, he's just, and point of fact, and then the very next reversal, he says this. Well, in a way, it's got to be a crutch because we all need a crutch. Life is not easy, and life for me isn't easy. And therefore, I think the Lord is has a tender spot in his heart for prisoners. He said so. <laughs> he says the farce in it. The farce in it. The farce in it. So his Christian conversion is a farce, and he's lying. It's oh, dear. Yeah, he's uh, he's trying to convince the the, the parole board, I guess, uh, that he's um, that he's redeemed himself. I mean, he does. I must say, he sounds sincere, but uh, you know, that's uh, what's that old line about? What does he have that I don't? Sincerity. Oh, I can fake that. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, well, he might sound sincere, but the reversals are really uh, quite opposite of sincerity. So, um, all right, I want to get to, I'm going to go straight to the two clangers on John Lennon, okay, and then we'll play some more on Lennon, but these two are just, um, these two are just amazing. This is on, um, this is on Lennon's uh, last interview, uh, 12 hours before he was shot, so here we go. He'll start coming down with stuff, you know, so I'm sort of obligated to keep up. And, but sometimes I can't because something will make me the best. Okay, and here he says, Mark had madness. Mark has madness. Mark has madness. Mark has madness. Mark had Mark. madness. Oh, holy smokes. 
what's he saying, Mark? Now listen to this next one. Listen to this one. Here we go. But I started to work, you know, and he started seeing a bit less of me. I'd let him come to the studio, but it was a bit boring. He was excited, but long story short. This one says, Mark, he'll die in the cell. Now, the word Mark's very quick. I almost didn't include it, but um, uh, my uh, my reversal checker, Jeff, my right-hand man, he, he, he agreed it was there too. So it's very quick, Mark, but he'll die in the cell. Certainly he, he'll die in the cell, clearly. It would appear. He's been t- uh, turned down how many times now for parole? Ten Six, times. seven? Ten. How no, many? Ten, ten times. Ten. Right. Ten times, yeah. So that's what we call a premonition. I'll say. That's, that's, uh, they're very rare. We don't find them very often. And so here is Lennon, tw- uh, 12 hours prior to his death, pre- uh, predicting the name of his killer and that's pretty you must have you must have you must have fallen out of your chair when you heard that oh i absolutely did that that, that was just incredible stuff i mean that's just stunning and and so and they're so clear well the mark isn't too clear of the second one but certainly he'll die in the cell is clear yes uh, yes uh the only other time I've heard a premonition in a reversal uh, since I've known you, and I've heard maybe, well, probably over the years with you, maybe close to 100 different reversals. That's right. a rough figure. It was the JFK yeah. uh, during his inaugural address, I, I believe, when a reversal um, seemed to predict his fatal head wound. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, uh, the reversal was uh, head is hit in the car. And uh, so this is from his inaugural address. The slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. This is head is hit in the car. Head is hit in the car. That's chilling, David. That's just chilling. Yeah, it is chilling. Yeah, it is chilling. I've also got one on Princess Di predicting her death in a car accident. We'll have to, I'd have to hunt to find that car play it now. I'd have to hunt <laughs> to find that one. But, uh, uh, yeah, but these, uh, but these reversals on Lennon. Uh, predicting his own death. Uh, uh, I mean, not predicting his own death, but uh, 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 naming uh, naming the name of his killer. Uh, actually, really quite stunning. And then here's an earlier one on Lennon that I found uh, in my archives. I, I have no idea when this interview is from, but uh, let's just play it. They concentrate the ammunition there. We know where it comes from, and we get on with the job of selling and or doing whatever we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And I believe that. You leave the door open, man, and that's where the door they'll come in, you know. And he says, I feel the gunner. Hmm. So that was just in my file. I feel the gunner. Yeah. Wow. What is that? Yes. What? I mean... What does that well, mean it, that the subconscious mind can do this? Yeah, yeah. No, I was I was actually pondering that very question this morning. Look, I first of all let me say that these type of reversals are rare. They don't happen very often. 
But what they indicate is that, is that we are tapped into a common collective unconscious that exists outside of time and has knowledge of past and future e e events. It talks to the incredible power of the unconscious, which we've only just begun to tap, you know. Um, um, so, um, you know, look, 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 I found one on, I found one on, a client just two months ago, um, Versal was something like, um, I will be sad. And uh, then about a month after that reversal, uh, this this man's partner died. And, uh, um, and then, of course, we, he, he went straight back to that reversal and said, David, you know, I know what that reversal meant now. Mm. You know? Oh, boy. So, so they are happening. And uh, I've just really only just begun to document them, really, just to start to really noticing them. But, um, yeah, uh, quite amazing stuff. Do you have a, a, another John Lennon or another Chapman? Uh, yes, I do. Here's another one, too, about uh, dead. Dear Mr. Lemon, from information I received while using a Ouija board, I believe that there will be an attempt to assassinate you. The spirit that gave me this information was Brian Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> he said the attempt we made in place on March 6th, 70, and Mr. Epstein also said that Paul McCartney was alive in London. <laughs> okay, he's talking about someone told him on a Ouija board there'd be an attempt on his life, and he says, get strong with dead man. Get strong with dead man. Get strong with dead man. No, that's pretty clear. That is pretty clear. It's also chilly. Gee, that one gives me chills. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so we're tapping into the enormous power of the unconscious. Oh, here's a cute one. Here he's talking about looking after Sean. In Bermuda to the Botanical Gardens for lunch to the Italian restaurant because I could get espresso and Sean could get some junk food. <laughs> and I was just walking in. I looked down and it was a botanical garden and it said, we're in the office, folks. That's why it's buzzing. And then he says, then I pull on Nanny. 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 He's being the Nanny, looking after his son, Sean. Then I right, you know, right. That's what he was Nanny. for five years in the Dakota, baking bread and being the, the house husband. That's exactly what he was doing. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great loss, great tragedy, incredible musician, incredible human being, and... Uh, uh, Mark, John, David, Mark, whatever his name is, Mark, David, should die in the cell. Quite frankly, I hope Lennon's reversal comes true. Mark, you'll die in the cell. Well, he uh, he's not getting out anytime soon, I, and which is curious. I mean, you know, other uh, other killers have served less time and have gotten out, and I wonder, not that I'm suggesting he should be released. Uh, but I'm wondering whether someone is keeping him in there because he knows something. Yeah. Well, you could say the same thing about Sahan Sahan. I mean, he's been in jail since 1967 for the death of RFK. For the yeah, of RFK. over 50 years, over 50 yeah. years. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let me see if I've got anything else in the last uh, few seconds uh, we've got time for. Um, uh, okay, here's a nice one on uh, Mark David Chapman. As he progressively got worse, and I believe I was schizophrenic at the time, no one can tell me I wasn't, although I was responsible. Huh, 
that's interesting. He's, he's saying he's schizophrenic, but backwards, the soul, I like it. So he actually likes who he is. Right. That was very clear. The soul, I like it. Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't know if you've heard this story, but um, uh, Chapman uh, supposedly told uh, police when he was taken, I, I believe a, a, originally he was taken to Bellevue for a, uh, a um, an evaluation, a psychological evaluation. And uh, he talked about um, a demon or two demons huh. that, uh, that, 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 told him to do it and um i believe he later described in an interview uh undergoing what he what he called a spontaneous exorcism while he was in his prison cell and the he felt these demons coming out of his mouth hmm. i don't know <laughs> what i would say to that <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, okay, whatever, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah. We should tell people about reverse speech radio, uh, David. Yes, we can. Yeah, yes, uh, a new episode comes out every week. We, our, our fan base is growing. We get, uh, we're getting more and more emails about it. So uh, it's a totally unique show. There's no show like it on the face of the planet and uh, we explore re reverse speech and uh, um, there's a link to it on my website reversespeech.com um, and you probably know their actual address better than I do yes people can so, it's on the Libsyn platform so people can go to reversespeechradio.libsyn.com reversespeechradio.libsyn which is spelled L-I-B S Y N. So that's reverse speech radio dot libson dot com. New episodes uh, every Thursday. Uh, just about every Thursday. I guess now that you're you're back in Australia and getting uh, settled again, you'll resume producing new episodes. Absolutely will. Yep. Yep. We're um, already got some next shows already booked in to record. So and, there we go. Oh, and uh, the last episode you did was uh, Prince Andrew. Uh, people will want to check that out. Yeah, yes. If you haven't listened to the Prince Andrew episode, you have to go and listen to it. It's a bombshell episode. If uh, Buckingham Palace ever listened to that one, although Prince Andrew is toast now anyway, I was going to say Prince Andrew will be toast, but he's been excommunicated basically from the royal family. Right, right. And that was during his uh, BBC interview. Uh, all right, well, uh, thanks so much, David, and we will talk Thank next you. week. Yes, we will indeed. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay. When, we, when we come back, Don Jeffries, the author of Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Coming up next week on the program, Thomas Horn, the author of The Wormwood Prophecy, NASA, Trump, 
and a cosmic cover-up of end times proportions. Uh, Don Jeffries has been researching the JFK assassination since the mid-1970s, when he was a teenage volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry. His first work of nonfiction, Hidden History, with the foreword written by Roger Stone, caused quite a sensation. His latest is Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Don Jeffries, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Fine, Richard. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. This is kind of an ongoing series. We've been working our way through the book, both on this program and on my podcast. Because yesterday, December 7th, was the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. I wondered if we could start with that. You do an entire section in the book dedicated to uh, post-war and pre-war America. But let's talk about December 7th, 1941, and this idea that it was a backdoor to war policy. Look the other way, let it happen, make it happen in order to get America into the war. Give me your general thoughts before we sort of break it down. Okay, well, I was very much indebted to the research uh, of uh, John Tolan in this, and uh, John Tolan is a, a great example to everyone out there who, to uh, what can happen to a, a revered establishment historian, as he was. He was a court historian in good standing. He'd won the Pulitzer Prize. They don't give Pulitzer Prizes to historians like me, and they wouldn't have given it to John Tolan if they knew what he was going to write. Then he wrote the book Infamy, and in, I believe 1982, and uh thoroughly documented, uh, more, more than I can go into in, in, into a book like this, where I covered it in some depth, but I just kind of gleaned the the most interesting tidbits from his research and Robert Stennis and others. But clearly, he demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt, we're talking about what, what FDR's associates said around him, Winston Churchill said, uh, clearly, FDR was desperate to get us into that war and would have done anything he possibly could. And uh, at that time, the sentiment in America was running very much against being involved in another European war because Americans still remembered all the lives needlessly lost in the Great War, as World War I was caused and uh, uh, called. And uh, I've, I've yet to hear anyone, any court historian anywhere, be able to explain why America or anyone was involved in World War I. They can't even attempt to come up with any kind of a logical explanation for that. It was a senseless slaughter of uh, far too many in Europe and, and as far as any Americans' lives lost were obviously uh, pointless and, and that would uh, become uh, uh, triggering to the left and they would start yelling Nazi when in fact the America First Committee is run by people like John T. Flynn, who was a classical liberal in good standing, was full of people like Upton Sinclair and, and people on the left who uh, were anti-war in those days, honest anti-war people, and they did not want to get involved in another European conflict in which America had no interest. So uh, FDR knew he had quite a task ahead of him, so you had to come up with a false flag. And uh, the sinking of Louisitania, which uh, it was a joke, and you know, we've already been, uh, been through that, where clearly uh, – Germany didn't sink that, but they, they used that as a false flag. They needed something more dramatic, and they came up with it with something like this where, uh, you know, the, 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 the dirty, sneaky, rotten Japs, you know, and they used that. And it was very racist, some of the uh, portrayals of the Japanese, uh, and they utilized that to great effect. And American opinion changed overnight. It was probably the most successful false flag in history. Well, because of- was it a case, Don, of make it happen, uh, or was it – 
look the other way, let it happen, and be glad it happened? Yeah, well, I think it, it was more like let it happen and be glad it happened. I mean, the Japanese obviously did have to attack. So it's not I, – I, I don't want to exonerate them. and say it, it was a little bit different, I guess, than some of the other false flags because the, the attack actually did happen. It was done by the Japanese as opposed to the sinking of Louisiana, which was not done by the Germans, or the sinking of the Maine in the War of 1898, the first real false flag in American history, uh, was not done by the Spanish. And uh, even even going forward to the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, which really didn't happen at all, and it was just kind of a fake incident. So this was a real incident, and you had dramatic footage and so forth, and it worked wonders. Americans were out planting their victory gardens and buying their bonds, you know, <laughs> within hours of this. I mean, it's uh, you know, we America First Committee folded up, and what I think was. Uh, Really illuminating after that is unlike World War One, where there was a great deal of protest, and uh, we discussed in a previous show how uh, that's where the, the term um, "you can't yell fire in a crowded theater" comes from—a Supreme Court decision which ruled that Woodrow Wilson did have the right to throw World War, uh, World War One protesters like Eugene Debs into prison. Uh, because of that, I think Americans remembered, and the false flag at Pearl Harbor worked real well. And there was virtually there wasn't a peep of protest. You did not have they didn't have to worry really about locking up people. Now they did, of course, incarcerate the Japanese, and they also incorporated incarcerated Germans and Italians. Now they never got reparations, and they're not mentioned by anybody. But they did. They we had concentration camps ourselves, so there was a lot not to be proud of in the home front as well as abroad uh, during World War II for the good guys. But clearly, World War, how, however you look at it, Pearl Harbor was a incredibly, I think, the most successful false flag in history because even though the evidence is very clear that, uh, that FDR knew in advance and was looking desperately to try any excuse to get America into, into, uh, into the European conflict – Still, you have people, if you just raise the issue, they, oh, the court historians go nuts. I mean, it's, it's like you know, trying to argue that, that, that we never went to the moon. I mean, that's, it's at that level. They don't want to discuss it, and they look at you like you're crazy, and that's what happened to John Tolan. Once he wrote this book, he went from Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, historian to not being invited anywhere in polite society. He was shunned. Uh, he was called a Nazi which is by Barbara Tuchman, another Pulitzer Prize winning historian. Uh, he was drummed out of the club and he ended his days very, in a very sad way. He had to, you know, the only people that would have him would be uh, Holocaust deniers and so forth. He had to go to their conferences because that's the only where, way he could speak. There's the only people that would let him have a forum to speak. And that's unfortunate that he would have to get mixed up with that bunch. What would have happened, though, if the United States hadn't entered the war? Because I'm going to, I guess I'm going to make an argument. Allowing Pearl Harbor to take place was kind of what they call the noble lie. Yes. It had to be done. Lives, unfortunately, had to be sacrificed to get America into the war. Because had America not entered the war, it would have there would have been dire consequences for Europe, maybe the world. Well, uh, you know, I've certainly heard that argument before, and uh, I, I don't think we have any way of knowing because I, I think probably the worst that would have happened. Was that you? You would have had uh, a Europe that uh, would be under uh, Nazi-type rule, rather than what what happened uh, with Europe. Uh, Eastern Europe was uh, signed over to uh, the Soviets <clears throat> at Yalta. So I think you would have had, and maybe would have had a different kind of Iron Curtain or something. I, I think it would have been similar. I, I don't think uh, it would have been dramatically different, uh, but I think that 
We need to look at all this, and that's why I look at, you know, when I'm writing about history, I, I don't trust anything necessarily that I'm told, especially about foreign leaders. Now, Hitler is the biggest boogeyman of all time. They're, you know, they're used to creating boogeymen, and it goes back a long way. Uh, so, and certainly in modern times, we're, we're certainly used to hearing about uh, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Noriega or uh, bin Laden or uh, Assad in Syria now or Putin, whoever. We're, we're constantly, with, which H.L. Mencken called, uh, <clears throat> treated to a, an endless series of hobgoblins. And it's designed to make Americans clamorous to be led to safety, as he called it. You know, the foreign monsters, what John Quincy Adams warned us against. He said America doesn't go abroad in search of foreign monsters to destroy. <clears throat> We've completely forgotten that advice, obviously, because that's all we do. So when you look at a guy, certainly the way they describe Hitler and the way Hitler has been uh, <clears throat> depicted – He's the ultimate boogeyman of all time, and he's he's got last he's got such staying power as cannot even be imagined. I mean, he's still popping up in movies here or there. I mean, I I, I guess people are not claiming he's still alive now, but who knows? You know, he's been claimed to you know, create not. I mean, you've had horror movies with Nazi zombies and but a reputation entirely deserved. The problem I find is that while we Hitler deserves all of that and more. But we tend to gloss over Stalin, who killed 20, exactly. 20 million. We gloss right. over Mao Zedong, who killed right. maybe, what, 100 million? I happen to believe that Hitler was uh, an international actor. And look, there's any question about it. And uh, if you read Professor Anthony Sutton's book, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, uh, he also wrote Wall Street and the Rise of the Bo- Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, where he demonstrated how these, these uh, multinational corporations – uh, supported these guys, and Hitler had support all the way. And I think Hitler was set up to be the designated loser in this World War II conflict. And I, I believe, as I write in the book, I don't think for a second that he killed himself in the bunker. I think he went on to live, uh, and the evidence shows that he went to Argentina, as did some other Nazis, and he lived out to whatever he died decades later. I agree. I think, and the idea that the Nazis, the Third Reich, didn't uh, surrender. The German army surrendered, but not the Third Reich. We'll take a quick time out, come back. More of my conversation with Don Jeffries as we discuss crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 1776 to 1963, right here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, just one f- final note on uh, sort of the World War II section of the book. You mentioned uh, uh, the suicide of uh, Hitler. D- didn't they, I think it was Jerome Corsi's book, Hunting Hitler. Other people have written about it, but I thought he really sort of nailed the case shut that they performed DNA analysis on the remains that have supposedly been housed in a vault somewhere in the former Soviet Union. And they concluded that those bones, those remains belonged to a female. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I've heard, too. And again, I think you're trusting, in that case, you're trusting the dreaded KGB. I mean, that's where you're getting your information from for that. And that's the problem with any, and that's why, you know, I mean, obviously I'm writing about international history uh, in this book, but it's basically America's involvement in that. And that's why I prefer, I concentrate so much on domestic issues, because I think when you, we talk of these things that are happening in other countries, we're, again, we're, we're getting it through the filter of our state-controlled media and our masters who lie to us about everything. That's what I'm saying. And unfortunately, when you discuss the World War II era, you wind up either with the court historians who have uh, demonized Hitler uh, to the point where he's this this figure that cannot even be humanized. 
And on the other side, what happens is then you get the David Dukes and the people like that on the other side who end up uh, worshiping him and thinking he was a great guy. So it's 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 hard to even discuss anything that happened there rationally because they were our all-time greatest enemies, and we won the war, and history is written by the victors. So we wrote the history. So who knows? And that's why in my book, I don't concentrate very much on anything that the Nazis did because lots of other authors have done that. And I talk a lot about Allied war atrocities simply because those are easier to document of what America and and Britain did during the war, the bombing of Dresden, where they killed like 38,000 toddlers or something so unbelievable like that, had no military value whatsoever. And uh, that I think that, again, it's, it's important to remember that these are the good guys, all the rapes I talk about. This is out there in the public record that the good guys, the greatest generation, they went over and they were – they did quite a bit of raping in uh, both Germany and Japan. Now, the, the, uh, the Soviets apparently didn't even did were even more prone to that. But the point is that you know these are the good guys, and uh, war is you know as, as Benjamin Franklin said, there's never been such a thing as a good war or a bad peace. And that's why when I analyze these wars, I'm looking at it that way. I don't think any of these wars are are, are good and. Uh, World War II, so much, so much bad came out of World War II. Um, we're, we're told, of course, that you know we defeated the ultimate monster and the Nazis, and it, instantly we suddenly had our Uncle Joe Stalin and the Soviets, who are our ally against the Nazis, suddenly they became the new monster. And you know, it's very reminiscent of what Orwell wrote about in 1984. If you remember what he would do, it, it, history would change. So that you're, you, we had always, one day we were always at war with Eurasia, Oceania was, and the next day, no, they'd always been our friends. And that's, I was reminded of that you know, when I first read 1984, of how similar that was to the end of World War II. How one day, Uncle Joe Stalin and the Soviets were our buddies, and they were our friends, and they helped us defeat the dreaded Nazis. And the next day, they were the worst monsters in the world. So I think that it's important to analyze what happened there. And, of course, we can talk about the Nuremberg trials some, too. I'd like to because I yes. think that's – Well, uh, that, we, we, we have to because that feeds into so many things that happened in the, the 1960s with the space race and MK Ultra, and perhaps even the assassination of JFK. A lot of that, thing I think, leads back to Operation Paperclip where uh, right. some of these – Monsters, and they were, they were monsters, escaped the, uh, the hangman's noose at Nuremberg. Their, their records were, uh, basically sanitized and they were exfiltrated into the United States into sort of two main groups. You had the, you had the intelligence group that uh, helped to launch the CIA, Reinhard Galen, and, uh, and then you had the, uh, the rocket scientists. Werner von Braun. Werner yeah. von Braun. And, yeah, well, and that's I think that's the, what I tried to point out in the book is how really uh, you had someone like Rudolf Hess, who, uh, if, if anything, out of all the Nazis, I, to me, he would have looked like the most reasonable one because he, you know, he flew this dramatic peace mission to try to have peace with the British. He uh, ost- was ostracized from Hitler and uh, did that, and they ended up uh, immediately imprisoning him, and then he was he imprisoned in decades as the only prisoner in the Spandau prison. But on the other hand, is Werner von Braun and uh, Reinhard Galen, people like that. They came through. Not only were they not punished, but they were instantly welcomed into uh, the most important positions in the government. Talking about the CIA and uh, NASA. So it, it's very curious how Operation Paperclip uh, made uh, 
instant top-level officials of some of these Nazis, and others had to be killed and hung. And um, I think it was the antithesis of justice, because up until that time, I don't believe any nation had ever thought to uh, legally try an alleged court of law the people they defeated in battle. Uh, these were show trials. They were, as I point out, you know, they were uh, sometimes uh, presided over by these uh, <clears throat> these Soviet judges who had uh, terrible records in terms of human rights abuses. And uh, at the time, lots of Americans spoke out, including uh, classical liberals, spoke out about uh, the, how what a, a terrible precedent this was. And, and one of those guys was John F. Kennedy. Hmm. I didn't know that. All right, Don, you never cease to amaze. We'll take a quick time out. More of The Conspiracy Show awaits. My name is Richard Serrett. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Don Jeffries stays with us and he will stay with us uh, into hour two as we continue to discuss his uh, monumental work, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. We were talking about uh, Operation Paperclip. And um, that also, I think, helped fuel a lot of the craziness uh, in the Cold War because a lot of those Nazis that found their way into the military-industrial complex, into the uh, the OSS, which became the CIA... I'm wondering if they, because they were such rabid anti-communists, whether they ginned up the threat posed by the Soviets, who, let's face it, were absolutely devastated after the Second World War. So how much of the Cold War mania and paranoia actually was created by the exfiltration of Nazis into the military-industrial complex? Well, I don't know that the the ex-Nazis created it, but I, I, I think I describe it pretty clearly in the book how I, I think the Cold War was uh, largely uh, a phony war. And I, I think uh, examples like Joe McCarthy proved that <clears throat> because, uh, in my opinion, what you had, you had uh, Harry Truman represented, the, you know, the, once, once Roosevelt died, Harry Truman became president, and he kind of uh, presided over this new uh, really, much as the Nuremberg trials rewrote our standards of justice <clears throat> and set horrible precedents there, uh, when Harry Truman came up with this new kind of contained warfare, uh, where we we were going to uh, confront communism, the Soviets indirectly, never directly, always indirectly in the field of battle. And that first was in Korea, which is artificially divided up between North Korea and South Korea. And we went into another incredibly pointless conflict. Again, anybody that died in Korea, I, I'm sorry if your loved ones died there, but it was for absolutely no reason at all, other than for the war masters that, you know, the, the Smedley Butler talked about, opportunities for profit, where he said war is uh, always about opportunities for profit. It's never about enemies. Let me just Let and, me just push back on that. We see this horror show that is North Korea. Had it not been for that intervention, 
wouldn't the entire peninsula be the hermit kingdom writ large? Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to tell what what uh, <clears throat> what would have happened if we had the same thing with Vietnam. I I don't know if we had not divided, but I I do know that. Again, I think these uh, what Truman did when 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 we first had this conflict, and they never called it the Korean conflict. They never even called it a war because it really wasn't. And you had this, you know, Douglas MacArthur over there who was kind of a. Uh, that old warrior that you know uh, was was with the last of a dying breed. When he actually attempted to fight the war, the only way he knew how, which was to attempt to win, uh, Truman called him back and fired him. And uh, he was considered kind of a you know he oh yeah you can't let the military overrule the civilians. Well, again because Truman was was presiding over what would now become common, and now ever since then. American foreign policy is dictated by these interventions in other lands where they have all these demarcation zones and, and uh, these rules of conflict, which leave the troops really as sitting ducks. And there's no, there's no policy. They're, they're really left out hanging to dry. It's, it's awful. And uh, we saw, obviously, it culminated in Vietnam, but ever since then, certainly in the Gulf War and even today in Afghanistan and Iraq, Nobody knows why those troops are there. They they don't even know. I don't think they're just they're just occupying for for no reason. They have rules to follow. It's crazy. But it started in Korea, and when MacArthur went against that, he was swatted down. And they got more. Uh, they got military people in there who would follow the rules, which were you know made no sense, no military sense anyhow. But uh, at that point, the Cold War became clear. This was going to be a war of containment. And and what would happen is that. Somebody like Truman epitomized that, and Eisenhower would also kind of do it, where they bought into this Cold War concept where uh, the domino theory and all the nonsense that we heard you know, later on, even as children, they were still talking about this stuff, which is why we fought in Vietnam. The Vietnam falls, and next will be whatever. It's the domino theory. But uh, in reality, then you had somebody like Joe McCarthy, who was, I think, kind of a naive senator, but a, a basically a, a, a had good intentions. And he was actually trying to root out uh, communist influence in our government. And there was there were connections. The KGB files uh, uh, would later reveal, again, our mainstream media is never going to report it because McCarthy became, uh, next to Hitler, probably the most demonized figure in American history. That's an excellent point. I think McCarthy, uh, I, I think McCarthy was naive in that he really didn't appreciate or couldn't understand how much. Uh, I mean, I know people joke about a red under every bed. I think, I think there's a great deal of truth to that. They even, and there was a, a book that came out recently. I interviewed the author on Coast to Coast, how they had, uh, the Soviets had tried to co-opt Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had, they, they, you had going back to the World War II, you had the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, Brigade. And I think these were so many celebrities from Hollywood involved. And I, I don't, again, I'm not calling any of them communists. I don't want to sound like the liberals today, which are really all supporters of McCarthyism today because they're, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia to everything. And you know, you're a Russian troll if you do. They don't, they don't seem to sense the irony how they're sounding exactly like the people they hated yes. in the 1950s. But, I, I think McCarthy, he didn't really get bad press until he started going after the army, Joseph Welsh and all those people. That's when, because he was pointing out, I think he was starting to, to pull the curtain back a little bit. Uh, what's behind the, what's the man behind the curtain? Because he was, he was demonstrating what a fraud this Cold War was and that I, I don't believe that, the, that our officials were, you know, they were Soviet agents. It's if there was this incestuous relationship going on 
because it was a phony thing, a phony war. So you had the, all these people that were uh, that had these connections. I mean, the Cold War, the KGB files later would reveal, and it was only uh, published in the, the small little newspaper, The Spotlight, which became the American Free Press that I write for now. They were the only ones that had the courage to, to publicize it. Gus Hall, who was the American Communist Party's president for decades, had been paid millions of dollars over the year by the Soviet years by the Soviet Union. And, you know, these were, if you had made those charges back then, oh my God, you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, uh, an adjective, whatever they would call you, you're a Nazi or whatever they would say. So these relationships were there. And of course, McCarthy's, as, as I go into the book, McCarthy's death certainly played, and I believe he was murdered. I don't think there's any doubt about it. He went into Bethesda Naval Hospital with a, a bad knee. He was 49 years old. And he died like a few days later, and nobody seems to know why or how. And, uh, you know, these, these kind of things, even then, the, the body count was starting to pile up. And a few years before that, James Forrestal, who I go over quite a bit in the book, too, is the first modern Secretary of Defense, what we used to call Secretary Warren to Truman. Uh, he supposedly jumped out of a window at Bethesda Naval Hospital. Most people don't know that McCarthy was good friends with Forrestal. And uh, Forstall gave McCarthy one of the great lines, which I've quoted on several talk shows now, and everybody seems to like it. But uh, he told McCarthy one time, he said, Joe, you know, if there wasn't a big conspiracy, once in a while, they would make a mistake in our favor. You know, once in a while, the odds would, would be that the, the law of averages would be that this wouldn't always work the same way. And I think that's a great way to describe what's going on. And uh, McCarthy felt that Forrestal had been murdered. In fact, he, he wrote a... a a pamphlet, uh, you know, the murder of uh, of James Forrestal. So these things are, you know, these this is the kind of history that most people don't know. When you hear the name McCarthy now, it's a McCarthyism. Most people don't know that McCarthy was uh, very good friends with the Kennedys. He dated the Ken- some of the Kennedy daughters, and he was the godchild of Robert mm-hmm. F. Kennedy's oldest daughter. Now, now I've heard that the Kennedy family's trying to uh, to to uh, disown that, but. For years, that was published in a lot of places that he was the godfather. So. That's fascinating. Well, you know, part of the, the the mythology, I think, is because the person who, in many ways, is credited with helping to bring him down was Edward R. Murrow. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's this, he's a saint, practically, uh, right. in many people's eyes. And so if Edward R. Murrow is against Joe McCarthy, McCarthy must be really bad. We'll take another time out, come back with Don Jeffries, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy. To each and every one of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hiya to those of you tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey you, streaming us live on the Zoomer Radio app and those streaming us on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Uh, Incidentally, there is no live stream tonight. That will return next week. And I see you all in the uh, YouTube live chat, however and wherever you're listening. I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you 
for your fine company. Coming up later this hour, a conversation with my late friend and partner, R. Gary Patterson, regarding John Lennon and the number nine, which seemed to follow him around his entire life and even in death. Here's a short article from Beatles University. During his years of seclusion, John Lennon dove headlong into numerology. It was just what he needed. Numerology could quickly be applied to any situation to get a preliminary reading on the future. Simple, compelling, and poetic, the laws of numerology have the power to make even the staunchest skeptic want to believe in it. Like playing the lottery, it can be addictive. After learning about numerology, John and Yoko were unable to walk out of the house without finding mystical significance in every license plate, addresses, and street sign. They would not so much as dial a telephone number without first consulting their Bible, Chero's Book of Numbers, which could have been subtitled, Numerology Made Easy. Now, let's get back to Don Jeffries, the author of Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Don, I want to talk about Smedley Butler. War is a racket. One little pamphlet uh, written 70-some years ago that is still uh, quoted uh, to this day and has, I think, inspired people like Tulsi Gabbard and others. But tell us a little bit about who Smedley Butler was. Yeah, well, he was uh, obviously a general, uh, so he, he attained the highest rank you could attain in the military. And uh, like many really great anti-war voices, he, he saw war firsthand. And uh, unlike a pacifist like me that would be sitting on the couch and just kind of being, having an aversion to it. but uh, And he wrote Wars, uh, Wars a Racket should have been the common sense, like Thomas Paine's pamphlet. Uh, it should have been the modern version of that. It didn't get the publicity it should have. Now, a lot of people do like it, but they don't – for instance, they don't I, – I was the first one uh, – Huey Long's great-granddaughter didn't, didn't even know this, but Smedley Butler was very closely connected to Huey Long, my hero. And in fact, she was shocked when I told her I, I found all this, uh, you know, researching it, that uh, Huey Long wrote a book called My First Days in the White House. Uh, which he had the audacity to do, of course, before even running for president. And then, of course, they assassinated him, so it was published posthumously. But he had a fictitious cabinet that he named, and his Secretary of War, because this was before they renamed it Secretary of Defense, was Smedley Butler, Mm. the greatest anti-war activist of all time. So you know what kind of (laughs) administration Huey Long would have had with Smedley Butler there. And Smedley Butler called that, called being named Secretary of War in Huey Long's fictitious cabinet, the greatest honor of his life. And when Huey Long was assassinated, he, he came out publicly and said, my whole interest in politics has died with Huey Long. And uh, even his you know, great-granddaughter didn't know that. So they were very closely connected. So even though the, it's curious because a lot of people on the left revere Smedley Butler, but they don't revere Huey Long. And uh, in fact, they were – Smedley Butler was, was the kind of leftist that I am, as was Huey Long. Uh, for instance, the Bonus Army, which we haven't talked about, the Bonus Army from World War One, which uh, was overrun by people like a young Patton and a young MacArthur, and a young, even younger Eisenhower. Unfortunately, they were routed from their tents on the Capitol lawns. They were they were promised a bonus, uh, and and they didn't get it. Uh, the U.S. government betrayed them, and uh, the, you know, in many cases they were very poor. They needed the bonus, but so a uh, 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 young Franklin Roosevelt 
opposed to giving them the bonuses. That's that's a diff- that's the kind of Clinton Obama leftist that even existed then, whereas Huey Long and Smedley Butler were in the forefront of demanding that they be paid their bonus. So you, you can see the difference if you go and study history and, and see what kind of people were were out there. Even then, you can draw parallels to the kind of figures you, you right. see today. And Butler's cynicism was earned honestly, served in what were called the banana wars in the Caribbean yes. and in the Philippines. So he he came to realize, just as the, the title of the pamphlet, a pamphlet suggests, war is a racket. Talk to me though. He he supposedly caught wind. Well, he he was he was asked to participate in this in yeah. this business plot against Franklin Roosevelt. Talk to me about right. that. Yeah, and that, and that's something that the left talk. And I find that entire thing curious. Because, and I don't I don't doubt for a second that he was approached because Smedley Butler was an honest man. So I I wouldn't disagree with anything he said. So I'm certain, quite certain, he was telling the truth. I just have a hard time believing, as I write in the book, that this this well known anti-fascist, you know, honest liberal, who would approach him to with the idea of overthrowing Franklin Roosevelt at the behest of, uh, I guess, a far right-wing a corporate group? I mean, why would they think that, you, that Smedley Butler would agree to do that? So I find the whole scenario very strange, and I don't know if it was conjured up to make uh, Roosevelt look better, and that, that he was kind of this enemy of the uh, the corporate world when he wasn't. He was anything but that, as Huey Long pointed out over and over again. So I've, I've always found that story to be very curious. And again, not because I d- doubt anything on Smedley Butler's part, but I find just knowing uh, what Roosevelt really was, which was a toady of Wall Street and a toady of the big banks and uh, of corporate America. And he was kind of uh, playing this role as this kind of a milk toast. Uh, figure that was trying to meekly reform things. And uh, thank goodness, the pressure of uh, people like Huey Long, we ended up uh, the very few things that came through the uh, the New Deal that were good. And one of them was the legislation in 1938, which uh, gave us the 40-hour work week and the concept of overtime and things like that, that American workers didn't have before that. And it was because people like Huey Long were advocating a 20- or 30-hour work week and you know, three months off, all much, much more uh, extreme. Uh, worker protections, but um, I have lots of quotes from Smedley Butler in the book, and I, you know, I'd urge I don't remember remember them all off the top of my head. But he talks quite a bit, as you mentioned, about how how the money he made for uh, big corporations and and how these uh, smaller countries, especially in Latin America, were exploited. And certainly, that's we they've, they're still doing that today. Uh, so these are very. Uh, and of course, later they would become kind of intertwined with, uh, uh, with United Fruit and companies like that that were CIA affiliates. That would uh, Fletcher Prouty would later. He's kind of a, in many ways, he uh, he echoed uh, decades later what uh, Smedley Butler was talking about, what his experiences were as far as uh, the way uh, the military and the intelligence agencies, ex- along with corporate America, exploited these smaller nations and. Uh, Smedley Butler was a was a. If, if people had listened to him, and if the left had been more like Smedley Butler, and uh, less like FDR, we'd be a much better country today. Right, old Gimlet Eye, they called him. Uh, <laughs> do you know where that came from? That strange nickname. I don't. I don't. I don't know that. And in fact, you know, Smedley Butler, he died at a relatively young age, and I tried to. Much as for this book, I, I was able to contact uh, some ancestors of other figures. I mean, obviously the. 
aren't going to be too many people left alive from the, the events I cover in this book. But I was I wanted to find out, you know, what butlers were left, what they and, and I I got nowhere with it. It was it was uh, you know I don't think he had children, and I, I couldn't find any ancestors anywhere and it was uh it was kind of a dead end and i really couldn't find out very much about his death i think he was maybe 50 if something like that it wasn't right. that old right one of his more famous quotes there are only two things worth fighting for one is defense of the home and the bill of rights begs man what and that and that's you know and he did, and most of what he wrote, I could just sit there and say, right on. And that's that's pretty much what I would say. Those are the only two things I think I would fight for. And uh, and America hasn't fought. If you take out the the attack on Pearl Harbor, which again I don't think that was a legitimate sneak attack, so I don't look at it like that we were attacked legitimately. Anyhow, I think the the last, really the only time America has fought a war of self defense was the War of eighteen twelve, when we were invaded by the British. Other than that. All our wars have been wars of aggression, where we've gone and, and decided to intervene or join a conflict overseas. And uh, I think that's unfortunate. And it's certainly not what the founders in- intended. And if Smedley Butler, boy, the founders would have loved Smedley Butler, because that's exactly what they would have said. You know, yeah, exactly. We, we fight war, of course. I mean, I, I'm not a pacifist. If somebody, you know, actually attacks America, well, then, of course, I'll be out there fighting, too. But... Uh, Unfortunately, the, for the Bill of Rights thing, I think that's largely been lost a long time ago because most of our citizens don't appear to even believe in the Bill of Rights anymore. So uh, <clears throat> they don't even seem to understand them. And look at look at what we just the interview the other day with uh, the CEO of YouTube, which is you know very disturbing. Where yes. she's you know just not only I mean just basically bragging about yeah we've eliminated seventy percent of the controversial content uh, because a lot of our people are starting to be persuaded by it. It's like. Okay. Yes, uh, yes. It's pretty okay. odious out there, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. But we're going to jump back and forth here a little bit, but there's an obvious connection I mentioned with Smedley Butler, and that is Democratic hopeful Tulsi Gabbard, who sounds like when she's on the campaign trail, like she's almost like she's reading right from Smedley Butler's pamphlet, don't you think? Yeah, well, she's and she's been caught, uh, I don't know if this was on purpose or what, reading uh, with a copy of JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas, you know, which is obviously a, a, a pro-conspiracy book. So uh, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, because she has, you know, certainly there's a lot about her that's attractive, beginning with, you know, she's attractive, you know, physical, very attractive candidate, well-spoken, and she's certainly sounding the right notes on uh, foreign policy, and she's calling us out, calling us to task for all these senseless wars, and uh, she wants to, you know, uh, she's talking about the treatment of Assange and Snowden, and certainly that's exactly right. So uh, she appeals to me, but she's a member of the CFR, and there's other kind of curious connections there. So, I, I, you know, it's hard after Donald Trump. I don't know if I could ever be sold on a candidate again. I, you know, I kind of I'm skeptical of everything, and uh, we'll see what happens. And, and uh, but certainly the establishment seems to hate her uh, in the same way that they uh, have had such vitriol for Trump. So. That speaks well of her, but uh, I find it hard to believe, though. I, I know lots of people online that seem to support her, at least in my sphere. She seems to be the favorite candidate, and yet they continue to claim she's so far down in these polls behind Buttigieg. And P- I don't know anybody that supports him. Uh, so, I don't, you know, again, I, I, I'm very dubious about the polls. And uh, But I would say, yeah, if there is a candidate that uh, was closest to Smedley Butler, I guess uh, she would be a cons- considering all the other candidates are pro-war. Hmm. 
Yes. The CFR connection, I wasn't aware of. Yeah. That is yeah. interesting. Interesting. All right. I just, I, because we were talking about Smedley Butler, I had to draw that connection to Tulsi Gabbard, but I want to, mm-hmm. I want to pop back to post-war America. And I want to talk about uh, something you address in the book, and that is the cancer explosion in the United States. Right. Is 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 that really when it happened? Uh, just after the Second World War? Well, I think it it was really it started, I guess, uh, early on in the uh, the twentieth century. But I, I published, uh, I have in the book there. Uh, I think it was the right around nineteen hundred, the leading causes of death in America and cancer and and heart disease, which are now by far the leading causes of death in America, were you know way down on the list. And uh, I also talk about how there was, uh, there was a study recently by a, a major university where they studied mummies going back to antiquity, hundreds and hundreds of mummies, and they could find virtually no evidence of cancer anywhere. So I think it's, the evidence is pretty obvious that cancer was uh, created in some way. And I have a lot in there about the vaccines, and obviously that's important, relevant now because there's so much talk about the links between uh, vaccines and autism. Well, uh, when vaccines first uh, became introduced, I guess in halfway through the 19th century, I have lots of quotes from doctors at the time and scientists who were talking about, hey, this is uh, this is dangerous. And later, uh, lots of quotes from doctors who talked about there was a direct correlation between the introduction of vaccines and the explosion of cancer. Certainly, there's something there. It's something in the that we uh, maybe in the food, the preservatives, or whatever. But what about the birth of the nuclear age and all of these test blasts? Well, yeah. Well, you had that that John Wayne movie, I guess, in the fifties, where every member, every, you know, every cast member, pretty much, got cancer within a short period of time. So yeah, there's there's there, there's no question about it. And uh, if you also in the book in, in the same section, I I talk about. Uh, all of the, uh, the really the hideous experimentation that went on all throughout the 20th century uh, through uh, at our, our universities, many, much of it sponsored uh, <clears throat> with government tax dollars and through foundations, and uh, later with the intelligence agencies, especially the CIA and the military, where they did these kinds of hideous Frankenstein-like experiments, uh, where they were you know introducing um, really bad diseases into uh, mental patients and prisoners, orphans, uh, you know, the most vulnerable people in our society. And it was really, it wasn't, the, of course, we've all heard of the Tuskegee Airmen. Tuskegee syphilis uh, experiment, yes, which yes, ran for, for 30 some years or maybe 40 yeah. and yeah. and would have probably continued had it not been yeah. uh, exposed that they were they were deliberately infecting men with syphilis. And then they just wanted to see how this horrible right. disease would ravage the body and they pretended like they were treating these people but they yeah. weren't it was just placebos they wanted to see what syphilis would do yeah and I, it, it was hardly an isolated most people would think it's an isolated incident it's not that was publicized and but i have in the book i have a, a lots of timeline of all the stuff going on of introducing syphilis and other diseases and even spraying whole communities uh, with deadly diseases. I mean, it's just bizarre stuff. And then you have, you know, groups of scientists that have, that have gotten a hold of the, uh, the terrible uh, Spanish flu or whatever it was in the World War One era that killed millions and, uh, are, are playing around with that. I mean, it's like they, apparently they haven't watched enough horror movies or whatever. Nothing's good's going to come out of that. But, uh, if you look at that chapter, uh, and just see all the, uh, really the, uh, chicanery that, uh, 
our intelligence agency and military were, were up to. And I talk a lot about the Dr. Gottlieb and Dr. Ewan Cameron, the experiments uh, on you know mind control and brainwashing. Up here and in they, Canada, yeah, Allen yeah, Memorial right, Hospital. Right, exactly. These were hideous, uh, again, so the Manchurian MKUltra was, uh, you know, and obviously a huge project, and that was just a part of it. And people, uh, I don't think enough Americans understand and this is our tax dollars that were financing this. This was not, you know, some kind of uh, something we weren't. I mean, our we financed it, and lots of people were hurt. Dr. Frank Olson, you know, under these things with the LSD, uh, right, was almost certainly killed uh, because of that. And his ch- his sons are still trying to get uh, some kind of justice for that. So there's a there's lots of hidden history there, and that and that and again, all this kind of uh, exploded. In the post-war era, during the alleged Cold War, and with the growth of the military-industrial complex, lots of projects were going on. And who knows, there, there may have been things that we still don't know about. I mean, you can go to things like uh, the Philadelphia Experiment, or I, I may write about in a future book with some other kind of supernatural-type things where people believe that teleportation and uh, invisibility uh, was achieved. Uh, in the 1940s. Right. Uh, right. And, and, uh, and whether that happened, I don't know, but there's a lot of people that claimed it did. And, you know, these are the kind of things that we don't know because there there were so much uh, so much money channeled into the military industrial complex. And there were so many projects that uh, we we still may not be aware completely of some of them. Well, the Philadelphia experiment connects with Montauk and Camp Hero, where a lot of those, you know, there are some very fantastic allegations about the Montauk chair and time travel and how it was connected to the Philadelphia experiment. But there's definitely something going on in the far east end of Long Island because this was a, this air, um, air base, Camp Hero, uh, that was, has been decommissioned for almost 40 years. And yet the security there remains very tight. Uh, and these allegations that below the radar tower at Camp Hero, is this labyrinth of um, under this underground facility where where small children uh, who wouldn't go who wouldn't go uh, no one would miss them they'd be swept off the streets <laughs> they were yeah. you know and uh, experimented on and I'm wondering of a, and they called them the Montauk boys um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 subjected to torture and drugging and so forth uh, I'm wondering if that a lot of that time travel stuff is is provided as cover because. Once people start to talk about time travel in relation to what was really going on, most people they they lose the room. Most people walk away. It's a it's a great way to to put people off the scent of what uh, sure. the horrors that were really going on there. Oh sure, I mean that would that would be a perfect cover story or smoke screen or whatever. Yeah, there's no question about it. And uh, but you know we've kind of I mean we started this talking about the cancer explosion, but I think that anybody that looks at uh, the explosion of cancer and the fact that, you know, how many trillions have been funneled into these. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I find it odd, you know, and I, I'll, I'll kind of uh, uh, mimic Abby Hoffman here. Uh, one of one of his great quotes, uh, you know, during the 60s, he said, you know, why do they call it the Drug Enforcement Agency, man? And it's a good point, mm-hmm. you know, because what, what do they do? They're enforcing drugs. I mean, that makes no sense. It should be maybe the Drug Prevention Agency or something. But why do they call it the American Cancer Society? As if they're celebrating cancer and all the organizations are like that where it should be the American, you know, anti-cancer or something, something like that. But, uh, the benign society even. And I, I just, I don't think, and I, in hidden history, my book, and also in survival, of the riches, my other book, uh, 
I talked about the fraudulent nature of charities, and included in that would be the American Cancer Society and places like that, where very little of the money that is funneled into these organizations goes into actual research because they have so much overhead. They're paying their CEO a lot of money, and they're they're paying, uh, they're taking donations and paying for advertising to get more donations. The crazy way they do things, but. Uh, Certainly, at this point, we should have made advances. And all you need to know about how successful they've been is that in the last uh, couple years, uh, for the first time in my lifetime, uh, the life expectancy of Americans is actually falling. Mm. And and that should never, ever happen. No. Well, and and when did Nixon declare the war on cancer? 1973? So it's been 46, well, nearly five decades. Like the war on drugs. (laughs) Right. We're losing badly. We'll take a time out, uh, come back with more of my conversation with Don Jeffries. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We were talking about the the Cancer Society and a lot of these charities. Again, I want to go back uh, because you talk about these uh, tax-exempt foundations, uh, the fabulous 50s. We we talked earlier about Senator Joe McCarthy and the the Korean War, but there's also uh, a section in that chapter uh, about the Reese Committee, which was uh, yeah. examining these tax-exempt foundations. Uh, I'm guessing things like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, and the right. Rockefeller Foundations. What did they discover? Well, it's very uh, lots of interesting things. I point out in the book, uh, one of the things they discovered went back to World War One, where they discovered that the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace, that, that connotates and p- people's minds, wow, they're working for peace, you know. Uh, there, there's, there's a whole series of myths and there are discussions on how to get America involved in a war. And then later, how to get, once they, World War I was going on, they talked about how can we make this last longer? And oh. people can find the exact quotes in the book. I mean, this, this is under the auspices of the, the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace. And uh, the Reese Committee and uh, Norman Dodd, who was their chief investigator. He gave lots of interviews. I quote from him extensively. He, he wrote, wrote the report. final report. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he talked about how uh, they, they were, you know, they ran into such opposition and just the idea of an, uh, it, because no one, you know, they, you know, uh, again, the, mostly the so-called liberal establishment was so much. And, and that would happen today because I just imagine today if you investigated the Clinton Foundation or the Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, that's the one I'd really like to investigate. So I'm sure, and there's so, and we already know, for instance, Bono, the rock star, his one foundation channels barely 1% of donations to actual research. 1%? Overhead, oh, 1%. dear Lord. So it's, it's aptly named one foundation. Hmm. Well, I've, I've been attacked on social media for people that like you too and everything. It's like, look, I got nothing. I, it's not even talking about the guy's music. This is a reality. It's been exposed. It's been published everywhere. And it hasn't shamed him into it hasn't stopped him from pontificating, you know, about these subjects when he's got a phony foundation that is apparently making him and his cronies, the people on his board of directors, even wealthier. But this is if you and this I think if Huey Long was alive today, he would really be looking at these foundations because that's where the wealth is. 
there's untold amounts of wealth in the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation because these are unaudited things, as much like the Fed is unaudited. Nobody knows how much, and certainly the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, International Peace. If we know back to World War One that an organization named for international peace was plotting within their minutes about how to create, how to get involved in war. Mm. Imagine what they've been doing ever since. So I would love to find out how much, and that's what the Reese Committee was was trying to do. And they received a, you know, a tremendous amount of opposition from the establishment, as you can imagine. And they really, I mean, I, I you know, put in the book the best, uh, the, you know, the best excerpts from Norman Dodd's uh, interviews about what they found, and they, you know, they did find some some juicy tidbits, but uh, it stopped there. And and certainly the the, the foundations have grown, and and now they become these foundations are uh, every one percenter. Once they become a one percenter, <laughs> they uh, if they get enough money, they create a foundation because it's it's a tax free shelter. They learn early on this is a way for us to avoid taxes, and we also get great publicity. Right. Because we'll claim right. we're doing some kind of charitable work. Bill Gates, I mean, this is a guy that you know wants to reduce the human population, and he's not really very uh, picky about how he wants to do that. Um, well, I have to be to be fair about uh, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and and uh, much has been made of you know this idea of uh, you know vaccinations, and uh, I think his I think his aim, and we can argue about the efficacy and safety of vaccines, but I think his aim is to, by reducing infant mortality, that'll have the effect of in, in developing countries, because if infant mortality is high, you, you have higher birth rates because, you know, out of 12 children, only three might survive. Uh, and so that's, I think, the end game with, with uh, the Gates Foundation. They want to reduce infant mortality. That will bring the, the population uh, down. Um, however, uh, when we're talking, when we're talking about the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation, I, I just had, uh, Paul Williams, um, on the program, uh, the author of Killing the Planet and how a financial cartel doomed mankind. It's just, it's primarily about the Rockefellers and the Pilgrim Society. Uh, talk to me about the, uh, the, the pervasiveness, uh, of the Rockefellers, uh, and its influence on every aspect of American society. Well, I think you have to really John D. Rockefeller, the the original, the old man, was really the father of crony capitalism, monopoly capitalism, because he was famous for his his quote was "competition is a sin," which is a curious philosophy for a capitalist to have, because capitalism is supposedly built upon competition. But uh, he kind of gave the game away with that quote, is that, you know, these predatory capitalists, they, they don't believe in any competition, and they crush the competition. And uh, certainly, I, I write in the book about how uh, Rockefeller, uh, it, it was no, uh, there's a conspiracy theory that says the reason why there was an early version of the electric car that was uh, that Henry Ford had uh, that was uh, quashed was because Rockefeller had bought up all this oil, and they they wanted to kind of steer uh, – Americans towards that, and that once Americans started to drive, all these gas stations started popping up everywhere instead of charging stations because people were buying the gas cars. And uh, by the time all of you know, they basically got a monopoly on that, so they had a vested interest in seeing that the cars ran because they obviously Standard Oil. And of course, Huey Long, and going back to Huey Long, the Rockefellers were maybe his biggest, uh, at least, public enemy. He fought because through their Standard Oil, he was fighting Standard Oil, and he was naming them 
by you know constantly pointing out that Rockefellers and Standard Oil. So the Rockefellers have been uh, front and center for a long time, and obviously even. In the last, uh, so I think Jay Rockefeller, I don't know if he's still in the Senate or not, if he ever retired. I'm not sure if he's still a senator or not. But uh, Nelson Rockefeller obviously was the vice president after being governor of New York. And David Rockefeller just died not that long ago because he was 99. Uh, he was kind of the dean of the establishment. They're always front and center. And uh, I'm not sure who the young Rockefellers are at this point, but uh, they're one of America's ruling families. I, I believe the Kennedys... I think John F. Kennedy had a quote he told friends a long time ago. People think, he said, you know, people think we're rich. And he, he kind of compared the Kennedys to the Rockefellers. And it's not, you know, it's not even relevant. The Rockefellers are that much wealthier. And then, of course, you go beyond the Rockefellers into the Rothschilds, the shadowy figures who, you know, unimaginable wealth. We really can't even calculate that. Right. And and what about the Rockefeller uh, Rockefellers' uh, involvement in things like, uh, the cancer society. The, the people talk about, uh, you know, how the cancer society is really the cancer industry and right. that the Rockefellers right. own, according to Paul Williams research, the Rockefellers, uh, you know, all of the, uh, the, um, uh, chemotherapy and radiation, that's all right. under the control of the Rockefellers. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, well, that's there. These people like the Rockefellers have huge, you know, have lots big investments in the medical industrial complex. Absolutely, the pharmaceutical industry and uh, and treatments like chemo and so, so yeah, they have a vested interest. It's I've always said, you know, if if I mean, I first of all, I believe that you know, cancer can be cured. I believe they know what caused it because they pretty much created it, and uh, they've known for a long time. But it's too profitable. Let's, let's face it. If, if they came out with a magic pill tomorrow to cure all cancer, you take this and you know, you're cancer-free, what would happen to the medical industrial complex? There would be no more oncologists, all that right, right there. All the pharmaceutical companies that, that, cre- that create the chemotherapy products, all that would be gone. And, and really, the, the major chunk of the medical industrial complex is cancer and cancer-related uh, diseases. All that would be gone. So it's almost like, you know, when you talk about free energy devices, what would the, how would the gas companies react to that? You can almost understand how they couldn't allow it because they've got trillions and trillions of dollars of profits every year through the oil companies. And if somebody came up with free energy, that would all be gone. We don't need your gas and oil anymore. So you can, I, I mean, I'm not sympathizing with them because I think they're you know greedy and evil to be doing it. But you can understand how that works where they're not going to allow this to happen because they're not – none of these people are in it for the betterment of, of mankind. They're in it for personal profit, and they're in it you know, for their own lives. Being, and lots of them I, – I personally believe that a lot of these one percenters have secret technology. Look at Henry Kissinger. He's 96 years old, and he's obese. He's walking around, and I've, I've said many times, if you go around and scour the earth – I would like to see any other example of a 96-year-old obese human being. I don't think they exist. Right. They're usually pretty frail at that point. Yeah. I mean, well, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't make it anywhere near 96 years old if they were obese. And uh, Kissinger's doing just fine. Hmm. And uh, so that's, you know, I mean, of course, I can't prove that. But, I mean, it just, it's an observation and uh, certainly seems strange to me. So it wouldn't, 
it wouldn't surprise me if they if they had this kind of technology for themselves. But uh, absolutely, the Rockefellers and and many other very powerful forces have a huge vested interest in this medical industrial complex, and that's why their only solution is just to keep telling you to give, give, give to the American Cancer Society, give to the American Red Cross, give to these you know these these uh, American Heart Association, whatever, all these huge charities because. Uh, uh, whatever it is, I don't know if all the wealth is being siphoning off, siphoned off into their pockets, but clearly it isn't going to any kind of meaningful research because there aren't any significant improvements being made uh, on these on these uh, helmets. All right, Don, stay put. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show in a moment. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free I get back to my conversation with Don Jeffries. A quick note to remind you about my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. To subscribe, all you need to do is register at my website, strangeplanet.ca. All I need is your first and last name and your email address. Now, unfortunately, you just missed the December issue, but if you register right now, you'll get the January issue. It'll be delivered right into your inbox. And of course, once you've registered, you'll also be entered into the monthly draw for great Strange Planet gear. T-shirts, mugs, hoodies, socks, iPhone cases, and more. So, why not register right now? Again, go to strangeplanet.ca. And don't forget about my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And to listen and subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. And we are approaching approximately 300,000 unique downloads per month. This podcast is really starting to take off. Okay, back to Don Jeffries. I know this is not part of the book because it ends in 1963 uh, but today is the 39th anniversary of the uh, the murder of John Lennon and i'm just wondering whether you believe the 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 same forces maybe even in some cases the same individuals who may have been behind JFK RFK MLK uh Malcolm X were also involved in the murder of John Lennon yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't believe the official narrative in John Lennon's death. I don't believe any official narratives, but certainly not that. And I, I'm actually, I, I'm almost finished a book on showbiz right now. It's kind of a different, I'll, I'll talk a lot about the John Lennon murder in that book. And um, suffice to say, you know, his son, Sean Lennon, is a noted believer in conspiracy there. Uh, one of the main investigating policemen is quoted on the record as saying, you want to say it's a conspiracy? Yeah. There are lots and lots of strange questions there. And uh, certainly Lennon was a figure that uh, we know the FBI had been uh, bugging him and trailing him for a long time. They tried to uh, extradite him out of the country. So there was certainly an organized effort on the part of the American government to try to silence him, to get him out of the country. So 
Yeah, I don't think it's any accident that uh, at that time, probably the, the, the loudest voice for peace in the music world uh, was assassinated in that way. I always found it curious, and many others have, I'm sure, about the doorman that night at the Dakota, Jose Perdomo, who was a man of many aliases, and it turns out uh, was recruited by the CIA, I think in Miami back in the early 60s, and he helped to assemble Operation 40, which was the CIA uh, hit team that some people think also had a role in JFK's assassination. Yeah, you, you, isn't it amazing how these these curious individuals show up? Uh, you know, it, just to give you another example of something like that, in, in in this book, I talk about how there was a guy named uh, Zapata. I think it was Douglas Zapata, who was a confessed. He confessed to a lot of people think General Patton was murdered. George Patton. Uh, he confessed to murdering him at the behest of these powerful forces. Zapata went on to ha- become one of John McCain, Senator John McCain's uh, chief advisors. And was a member of the 9-11 Commission. Now, oh, if you can explain how, <laughs> how, how does that happen? So we find these, you know, the doorman at the, at the Dakota having, I mean, if you scratch the surface, it's amazing the kind of people you find that are, that are involved or associated with these events. And that's, it's what makes me a so-called conspiracy theorist because there's, there's no other way to look at these things because there, there's so many connections and questions that, you just you you have to turn off all critical thinking faculties to just say that they're all coincidences. Yeah, sure, there's some are, but there's far too many, and uh, that that's one of them, the code of thing, and that's just one of the really the intriguing things around Lennon's murder. But uh, yeah, I don't believe for a second that. Uh, I mean, I, again, I I have uh, in my book on showbiz ever comes out, I have it detailed a lot more, and uh, it's a uh, I, I I don't believe in many. Uh, official narratives, like I said. So, and typically, uh, whether it's uh, John Lennon or Natalie Wood, John Belushi, any of those, I, and I cover all of them, uh, even Elvis Presley, things like that in the book, where uh, I think there's always more to the story. And if you, especially if you actually look and research it and, and see what the evidence is, wait a minute, you know, they're, they're lying. I don't know why they're lying sometimes, but they, most of the time they're not telling you the truth about the you know, there's especially in showbiz. You know, uh, Randy Quaid. You know, is kind, yes. of, kind of considered a wacky guy. He talks about the Star Whackers. There's something to that. There, I, I believe there is. I, I believe so as well. Uh, last, I, I'm not sure if he's still up here in Canada. He sought refuge up here. I'm not sure. Maybe he moved back. He thought it was safe to go back. I'm not sure. Uh, Don, how do people get a copy of Crimes and Coverups? Well, it's published by Skyhorse, and uh, you can you can get their publisher. Go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. It's it's in lots of places. If you uh, if you Google it, you can find it. Get the best deal you can out there. Get your local library to you know you don't have to buy it. Have to tell, tell your library to add it to their collection. It's in lots of libraries. But if it isn't, uh, ask them to do that. Don, always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Richard. When we come back, we'll commemorate the anniversary of John Lennon's murder, December eighth, nineteen eighty. And I'm going to play part of an interview I did with R. Gary Patterson, my dear friend who died back in May of 2017. And we'll be talking about some of the strange coincidences or synchronicities surrounding Lennon's life and death, many of them involving the number nine. That's coming up next when The Conspiracy Show returns. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, 
Call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. I thought we'd sign off tonight with an interview I did with my good friend, the late R. Gary Patterson, talking about John Lennon and the number nine. Uh, This first aired back in December of 2015. Here's how it sounded. R. Gary Patterson, a rock and roll investigator and the author of uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And I, I wanted to start the discussion uh, talking about some of the, I don't know, the coincidences and the, the, some of the strangeness surrounding Lennon's life and uh, career and his death with that number nine, mm-hmm. which seemed to follow Lennon around. Uh, I mean, he was born on uh, on the 9th of October. We have we have the number nine recurring in, in, in uh, many of his, of his songs, Revolution Nine. One after nine oh nine, number nine, dream. Um, what other? Uh, where else can we find the number nine with John Lennon? Well, as you said, he was born on October the ninth. He was born in a city, Liverpool, with nine letters. Uh, you can go through even the numbers on the license plate of the policeman who was off duty that hit Lennon's mother and killed her. The numbers added up to nine. Uh, he was aware of that. He was also, if you look at November 9th, 1961, that was when Brian Epstein discovered the Beatles. At the Cavern And nine years later, they'll break up. That's 1970. Also, he meets Yoko Ono on November 9th, 1966. So the nine played a role there. Of course, they became, you know, major Beatlemania in the United States when they played the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9th, 1964. There you go. When Lennon and Yoko arrived in the United States, they eventually stayed at the Dakota, but they came into the United States in 1971. You had nine years to that. That's 1980. The year he died, his apartment at the Dakota was number 27. Of course, that makes nine. The Dakota is located on West 72nd Street, another nine. Right. And he was shot there, and that was on 72nd Street. He was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital that had nine letters. Uh, Roosevelt Hospital is located on Ninth Avenue, and he was pronounced officially dead at 11.07. So you had seven plus one plus one is nine, and he was born at 6.30 p.m., so six plus three is nine. So he was born on a nine, died on a nine. A lot of people say, well, you know, he died on December 8th. Wouldn't it have been weird if he had died on December 9th? But you got to remember, he was a British citizen. And at the moment of his death, when it, when it was announced in England, it was already five hours ahead. So it was already December 9th at that time. There you go. Another thing is that his son, Sean, was born on his birthday on October 9th. Hmm. So, you know, you can look at it. I think they were together nine years, you know, Yoko and, and John. So there's so many things you could do a book on the number nine. I know that <clears throat> I have a lot of that listed in uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side because to be aware of a number that would affect your life forever. And, I mean, he knew that. Of course, obviously, because he had, even in when he was in the very early days of the Beatles, you had the one after 909. And uh, so, obviously, he was aware of it then. Of course, he was in a group called the Quarrymen. That was nine letters also. McCartney, right. when he meets Lennon, McCartney had nine letters in his name. The only Beatle with nine letters. And that became his prolific songwriting partner throughout, you know, Beatlemania. So, 
you know, you can look at that and you can say, oh, that's a coincidence. Isn't that a coincidence? But, you know, sometimes the definition of a coincidence, Richard, which we know, is uh, an explanation waiting to happen. There you go. Uh, I've got a, an, another one here for you because we just we, we, we heard uh, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, which was from Lennon's 1974 album, Walls mm-hmm. and Bridges. Right. The album was his ninth non-Beatles right. album. It was issued in the ninth month of the year. And number nine, Dream, uh, let's see, on the Billboard Hot 100, where do you think it peaked? I think it peaked at nine. At number nine. My word. That's, I mean, and, and obviously Lennon was, oh, we, uh, you mentioned Roosevelt Hospital. Ninth, did you mention it's on Ninth Avenue? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, now, I mean, was Lennon, I, I believe Yoko was heavily into numerology. Was, was Lennon into numerology? Oh, he was into numerology, astrology. I know that Yoko used to uh, control him at times for not going anywhere by telling him, John, Mercury's in retrograde, Mercury's in retrograde. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, I think that she really sort of, he had an interest, but I think she really piqued that interest. And, uh, you know, they would have a number of psychics over at their homes. They would do readings. Uh, When they moved into the Dakota, the actor who owned it had passed away. So they did a seance to contact his spirit to see if it would be all right for them to have the apartment, you know, that the spirit wouldn't bother him. I think it was Jack Ryan, something like that. I have to look it up. But when they did the seance and they spoke to the spirit, they notified his daughter that they had talked to her father in the afterlife, and he'd give them permission to have their, his old place at the Dakota. And uh, I'm sure that his daughter enjoyed that. But anyway, I mean, they were into it. And, you know, when you take a look at the Dakota, in a Playboy interview, there's a scene where Lennon's doing his interview, and he hears gunshots. That's right. And he turns to the, turns to the writer, and he says, oh, another murder at the Rue Dakota. Well, in its entire 99-year history. <laughs> oh, 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 dear. In its 99-year history, there was only one murder at the Dakota, and that was John Lennon. And uh, there's a gate on the other side. It was called the Undertaker Gates, that if uh, someone who died at the Dakota, then their body would be taken out that way, like Boris Karloff. I remember he passed away as one of the tenants of the uh, Rue Dakota. But it's kind of interesting, you know, when you take a look even at the Dakota, had its 99-year history with John Lennon being the first one murdered. Right. You know, Did that you know, line actually make it into the Playboy interview? Did what now? The line did, yes. So foreshadowing. Yeah, a little foreshadowing, you know, that he would say that. And, uh, I mean, did he have a premonition, Richard? What do you think? Were there premonitions with uh, John Lennon that he knew that he was going to have a short life? Well, he, he actually predicted it, didn't he? Someone, someone somewhere asked him, how do you think you're going to die, John? And he said, some loony's going to pop me off or something like that. Do you remember that interview? I, I can't remember where or when, but he said that. You know, Some Fred, loony is going to pop me off. Yeah. Fred Seaman. Yes. In uh, his book, mentioned that Lennon was convinced that he would be shot to death, that it was a modern form of crucifixion. Wow. And that for his line, the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ, that he would see that. That would be some sort of, that would be the way he would go. Some loony with a gun was shooting. And what was odd is that he was shot five times. And uh, did you know that Mark David Chapman stops in Atlanta before he comes to New York to kill Lennon? 
he tells this policeman, who's a friend of his, that he doesn't have any bullets for his gun. He's going to New York. He needs it for protection. So the police officer gave him five bullets. They were hollow point, too, weren't they? Yes. Well, they, you know, it, 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 he meant business when he did this, but Leonard was shot five times. And if you know anything about medieval literature and you take a look at cross symbols, you, talk, you take a look at the number five. And the number five, for instance, if a knight had a five-pointed star on his shield, like Gawain in the Green Knight, right. the five-pointed star stood for the five wounds of Christ. Oh, my. So you you always take a look at the five bullets, and I think about the five wounds of Christ, you know, the crown of thorns, each hand that sleep together and the wound at the side. And you take a look at those five, and you're saying, you know, this is odd, you know, that that you had the medieval concept of the Christ figure with the five wounds, and then John Lennon being shot five times and saying that that would be the way he would go. And, uh, you know, that was documented much earlier than that. So, yeah, you have a premonition. And, and the song, Number Nine Dream, you know, isn't that kind of odd, too? Yes, there's something very ethereal and haunting about that about that song. Every time I hear it, it gets me. Yeah, me too. I have the same. It have the same effect on me. And the line where he says, "Someone calls out my name." Ah, yes. And you hear John. John. And May Pang told me that it that was her voice. That she was the one who went in to the studio with John, and she she's the one who calls his name softly. But after John died, Yoko had. May's voice removed and placed her voice saying, John. Is that right? Yeah. And, of course, someone calls my name, and we know Mark David Chapman called out to him, Mr. Lennon. He did, Lennon. Mr. Lennon. So he turned his head. Someone did call out his name. There's a little bit of my interview with the late R. Gary Patterson from December 2015. That's it for me. My thanks to Owen Wolfe and Ryan White. I'll be back next week with Thomas Horn author of The Wormwood Prophecy for the full two hours. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.